the last section that we went over, and you'll notice I've got up in the corner, this is Revelation 14 through 18. We've only gotten through 16 so far. So this is only going to take us partway through uh, where, we're, where we are right now in the book of Revelation. But we have done these three. We've looked at the coming storm, the last six um, bowls of wrath. And it starts with this song of the 144,000. Their mission is finished. Uh, again, I think that is a good reason why this is looking towards the end of the tribulation period. Why would they stop ministering? Why would they stop sharing the gospel in the middle? Um, we have these announcements in midheaven by these angels. I think they're announcing the very last hours of world history. The first angel comes preaching the eternal gospel. Notice a preeminence is still placed on sharing the saving message. Uh, God is still interested in offering that salvation all the way up to the very last moment. Just like in the days of Noah, people could be saved on the ark up to the very last moment before God shut the door of the ark. The first angel then uh, flies through the midheaven, which is essentially our, uh, our atmosphere where planes fly. And he will preach the gospel to all the earth. Um, there will be no one who has not heard it. The second angel that God will send will preach doom for Babylon the Great. This will be the world governmental system at that time, the, uh, the religious and political. They will be one and the same at that time. And then a third angel comes and preaches doom for the beast worshipers. Uh, so you've got an invitation to join sides with God before he destroys Babylon. Then you've got the warning of the consequences of siding with Babylon and becoming one of those doomed as a beast worshiper. Then you have a blessing to the faithful dead that offers rest from the labors. Um, blessed are all those who have died. Uh, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on, yes, says the Spirit, so, they, so that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow with them. So this, again, has to do with the rest uh, of salvation for these believers who have not sided with the beast, but have sided with the Christ. Then we get the announcement of two harvests. One is a grain harvest where the son of man reaps and collects. We could uh, think of, I guess, the kingdom parables might be a good place where we could go for some of this imagery in Matthew 13, where uh, the Lord gathers into his barns those who are his. But then we have a second harvest, and this is a harvest you don't want to be part of, and that is the earth being reaped of those, um, those enemies of God. The actual uh, mechanics of how this work is what's dealt with in the coming chapters. This is the vintage harvest, the grape harvest, and the those rather than being gathered into the barn, the uh, millennial kingdom, are gathered into the great wine press of God's wrath. Now that verse here is a very uh, popular verse. Many people know from Revelation. That is uh, verse 20, the winepress was trodden outside the city and blood came out from the winepress up to the horse's bridles for a distance of 200 miles. 
Now people will point out this uh, this orange arrow. This is the Valley of Armageddon, the Jezreel Valley. It's about 200 square miles. Um, and this is where the armies of the Antichrist will position themselves. This is also outside the city, the city of Jerusalem. So it is a candidate for what this is talking about. I prefer the 200 mile distance rather than square uh, mileage in uh, between Petra and the Gulf here. And that has to do with, uh, I think, some of the, the more nuanced aspects of the last days of Earth, excuse me, which we talked about when we went through Armageddon, and we'll look at those again. But I think uh, rather than being a, a sea of blood, I think it's going to be a river of blood for 200 miles when the Lord returns to rescue Israel and uh, conquers his way all the way from Petra up to the city. All right, and then we get chapter five, which is a pretty short chapter. Um, it's preparation for the coming bold judgments. We get these seven angels on a sea of glass mixed with fire. They sing, or the uh, those rescued, um, the rescued members of the house of Israel sing the songs of uh, Moses and of the Lamb. Again, I think these are two songs that they sing. Um, it might be two songs kind of woven into one. At that point, the tabernacle of God is opened and these seven angels exit carrying, actually they're not carrying, they exit and then they are handed seven bowls of wrath from these, from one of the uh, four um, angels before the throne of God with the four different heads. At that point, then the temple is sealed until judgment is completed and it fills with smoke. Now, these last judgments, again, they were so impressive and so terrible that they can't have really spanned much time at all. They build an intensity with um, incredible ferocity. And uh, it honestly is just something that you would never want to experience because you wouldn't experience it very long before it before succumbing to it. Uh, the first one is uh, is uh, loathsome sores. And when we looked at this and uh, some other uses of this word in the Greek, this probably has more to do with leprous sores than it does with um, just something like bug bites or even blisters or monkey pox, uh, what have you. Uh, these sores would be probably opened, festering, rotting wounds um, that would suddenly appear on people. It could be something like radioactive fallout wounds, uh, it doesn't necessarily have to be uh, be supernatural, but I think it will be. The context seems to point towards a supernatural sore, uh, perhaps much like the curse of Miriam, where she is all of a sudden covered in leprosy from head to foot in a moment's notice. Uh, these sores are not just going to be the sores you see in, a, in an ER from a, a yeast infection or something. These are going to be painful open, rotting wounds. Then again, in close succession, perhaps less even than a day apart, the seas will all become blood and everything in them is going to die. Not even during the flood of Noah did the sea creatures die, but here they all do. And I think that's expressly stated here 
because this judgment is increased in intensity from any judgment that has happened before, it is a world-ending cataclysm. Then all the waters and all the springs become blood. There is nothing left to drink. Not only that, but one of the best cures for sores or um, reliefs for sores is to soak them. You won't be able to do that. Um, all the water that will be on earth will be turned to blood. And there is a special breakout at this point where the angels watching this happen, um, I think, feel the need to justify God in his actions or point out how God is just in the actions that he is doing, because these are incredibly um, destructive judgments. These are world-ending judgments. He is very just in bringing them. So the angel of the water says, righteous are you who are and who were, O holy one, because you judged these things. For they poured out the blood of the saints and the prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. They deserve it. And I heard from the altar saying, yes, O Lord God, the almighty, true, and righteous are your judgments. So God is not overdoing it here. God is perfectly just, and he is dealing out the judgments that are due, nothing less and nothing more. Then the sun's heat is increased, and those festering sores that can't be soothed by water anymore are now exacerbated even more um, by heat. And the result in the hearts of wicked man, rather than turning to God in the last possible moments, is to blaspheme him openly and publicly. Then darkness will set over the beast's throne. This, uh, actually all of this, but this as well, kind of uh, points towards an uncreation of the world where God said, let there be light in the beginning. Here in the end, he is saying no more light. So that even that light, which was first his presence in the first three days, and then he put as a luminary in the heavens, even that is going to be suppressed. It does not say that the scorching heat of the sun will be suppressed at all, only that it will not give off light. So this will be a darkness, and it says it's a painful darkness. Their sores and the darkness um, will continue to afflict them in these last days. And then the Euphrates is dried up. Uh, this doesn't seem at first glance like a judgment as bad as the others, but what it leads to is the very last war against God. The battle of Armageddon, which is the Antichrist, uh, basically like an ant, waving his fists at God. Um, but he, he goes after the people of God in Israel. We'll do a little bit more detail on that. But after Armageddon comes complete destruction. Now, we did a breakout session. Uh, it's doubled on Armageddon because not much detail is given here. And that's probably because most of the detail given is in the Old Testament. It doesn't need to be um, repeated in Revelation. It's not a very long book, uh, just 22 chapters. We've got the uh, 60 plus chapters of 
Isaiah, the 50 plus chapters of Jeremiah and 48 and Ezekiel. We can go to those books and the 12 minor prophets and we gather a lot of information about this final battle, uh, the final days of Israel in this world. And we get eight different stages that we can identify. First, the armies of the false Christ will assemble in the Jezreel Valley. That's the Valley of Armageddon. This is a staging point, and it has been in history past as well, a place where they go to prepare for battle to go against Jerusalem. Um, this is uh, kind of crosses the border between Samaria and Galilee, if you're thinking in gospel terms. This would be the Southern Galilee region, uh, maybe from like nine down to uh, Mount Gerizim or something. Um, I think that's kind of that valley range. It's about 200 square miles. That's where they will um, stage the armies. And it was necessary for the Euphrates to dry up so that the armies of the Antichrist, which is a global army, um, can make its way into the Middle East. For this battle. I think they'll come from all directions, but that's the one waterway that is blocking their way. And uh, Babylon will be on the Euphrates River, um, even though it'll probably be on this side of the banks. Uh, but while the Antichrist is staging his battle from Armageddon to go against uh, Jerusalem, while he is away from his throne, his throne is destroyed by a group of Gentiles that come down from the north, northern Mesopotamian region. Uh, they will come in and sack the, the throne of darkness there. And then the uh, Antichrist will get word that the throne in Jerusalem has been destroyed, that his headquarters or his uh, capital building is gone. And perhaps out of rage, he will move ahead with his attack on Jerusalem. And they will fight valiantly. We see in Zechariah, and I think in Hosea as well, there are a few passages here. Jerusalem will fight with the increased strength that God will give them. But in the end, they will be overcome. And Jerusalem will be sacked. Then the armies of the false Christ will move on to Basra, which has Petra in the heart of it. And his goal here is to finish the deed, to get rid of the tents of Judah that are um, staked outside the city here in the protection of God in the city of Petra. However, Israel is undergoing a spiritual conversion at that time. They themselves are undergoing a Jonah-like resurrection. And after three days of confessing their own sins, the Lord himself will regenerate them, fulfilling the promises of the new covenant. They will receive their Messiah, Jesus Christ, as their king. And he will come back and slay the false Christ. He will stand victorious over the earth and over this battle of Armageddon. And he will move from Petra, from the Basra sheepfold, up through Edom and to Jerusalem, and finally ascend up the Mount of Olives in victory, leaving, I believe, a 200 
mile distance of a river of blood behind him. And that's where we've left off. Thank you.